0: Hi, I'm Tyler Saltsy, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news, or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. The book of Ecclesiastes, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, page 553 this morning. And I am excited. A new day, a new chapter in Ecclesiastes. Praise the Lord. One of the things that I do as I ponder and pray and think about the next thing that the Lord would have us go through as a church. What is it, God, that you want to tell us through your word? What is it that you want to make known to us? What is it that we need to hear? And one of the things I do is I go back to the Grace Bible Fellowship records. We have records for 30 years, just about, uh, of all of the sermons that have been preached here uh, in our church. And so, do you know how far you have to go back to find the last sermon on Ecclesiastes? June 1998. That's how far back you have to go. And you know how many sermons over the course of 30 years that has been preached in this pulpit on Ecclesiastes. One. That was it. June 1998. That was the sermon. Uh, So I am looking forward to uh, preaching through Ecclesiastes uh, because uh, we haven't heard it for a while, and we only heard it once in 30 years, and maybe if you're from a different church, uh, maybe you've heard a sermon on Ecclesiastes, but I think it might be one of those books that is often... Overlook. When was the last time that you read the book of Ecclesiastes in your quiet time? It might not be the book that we turn to, but still a book that I believe God is going to use greatly in our lives, and I am excited about it, and hopefully I can share some of my excitement with you as well. Would you stand with us, with me as I read the first 11 verses from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain? By all the toil at which he does under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already, it has been already. In the ages before us, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, so that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. there are certain voices in your life that are comforting voices. Certain voices in your life that are soothing voices. Voices that you hear and you would say, I would recognize that voice anywhere. Voices that come into your life at certain times with a certain amount of clarity, with a certain amount of precision to say exactly what you need to hear. Voices at times in your life that you hear that bring assurance, that bring a certain amount of comfort. Someone who comes into your life and says, everything is going to be okay. And you believe it as you hear it. Certain voices like that in the Bible, aren't there? Voices that you're familiar with. Voices that you know. Voices like the voice of Jesus. When Jesus speaks and talks to his disciples and talks to the crowd, talks to his church, you recognize his voice. Isn't that even what he says? The sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. Voice of comfort, voice of compassion, voice of love, voice of assurance. Other voices you might know in the Bible as well, though. Paul, Paul is a very familiar voice in the Bible, wrote much of the New Testament. You would recognize his voice as he writes his letters to churches or to individuals to encourage them and to strengthen them and to challenge them. Maybe you would recognize the voice of Moses. Wrote the first five books of the Bible. You read those books and you see, yes, I hear, hear Moses' voice coming through those books. How about another familiar voice in the Bible? How about the voice of David? You hear his voice in the Psalms. You go back to them again and again to find refreshment for your souls. You Think about those voices that you hear as you read God's Word in your life. And those can be very familiar voices, very comforting voices. That's not the voice of Ecclesiastes. The voice of Ecclesiastes is different. It's it's hard. It's harsh. We hear the, that voice and we say, is he allowed to say that? I don't think... I don't think that you're supposed to say those kind of things or write those kind of things in the Bible. But I think that voice is used strategically because hearing a voice like this from Ecclesiastes makes us sit up and take notice, doesn't it? It makes our ears perk up and we say, this is something different than I've ever read before. This <laughs> is a different voice than all the other voices that I hear in the Bible, And it's a voice that we need to hear and a voice because this is still the voice of God coming through to us. This is the voice of His Word. He is speaking to us. And a voice that's going to create tension in our lives, a voice that is going to make us uncomfortable, a voice that is sometimes abrasive, A voice that sometimes doesn't calm your soul, but in fact, stirs up your soul. A voice that comes to you with a full force of blunt honesty about life. I've heard it described like this. Ecclesiastes is like a crazed man downtown, He looks like he hasn't bathed for many months. He smells like he hasn't bathed for many months. And as you meet him on the road, he yells out things to you like, your life is built on an illusion and you're going to die. What do you do when you meet a man like that? Pick up our pace, walk a little faster. Do we have opportunity to cross to the other side of the road before we come into contact with this man? Whatever you do, don't make eye contact with him. And that's what ecclesiastes is like it makes us uncomfortable it's not what we're accustomed to reading in the bible and even though it's difficult even though it's uncomfortable i think you will still recognize the voice behind it the voice that makes you face the music of real life are you willing to face the music And it makes us face the music because Ecclesiastes deals with the big questions of life. Deals with the questions that all of us have to deal with. All of us have to wrestle with. All of us have to find an answer to these questions of life. Questions like, what is the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Why am I here? Is it worth it? You have those questions? You found the answer. Have you found an answer that satisfies you? Ecclesiastes takes our head in its hands and makes us look at the difficult. And hard questions of life that sometimes we would like to ignore. Sometimes the questions that we would like to skirt. Sometimes the questions that we would like to get around. But Ecclesiastes says this. Christian, ignorance is not bliss. Deal with it. And I'm afraid that so many of us like to walk around like ignorance is bliss. I don't want to deal with those questions. They make me uncomfortable. They're too difficult. They're too hard. What are you going to do? How are you going to make sense out of life? I was a Bible teacher at a Christian school in San Antonio, Texas for four years. And there was one particular student who was a rebellious student. He made life difficult for people. Made life difficult for his parents, made life difficult for his teachers, made life difficult for his siblings, made life difficult for himself, even. And there came a point where I had the opportunity to talk to him about the gospel, talk to him about Jesus Christ. And try to encourage him and say, you're not going to get anywhere in this life without Christ And he continued to have a hard heart. He continued to reject, say, no, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus Christ. And so I said, what is it? What is it that's holding you back from trusting in Jesus Christ? And he said, I don't know how I could ever trust the reliability of an ancient old book. I don't know how I could ever believe a message from this ancient book of the Bible that you say that you believe in. And so I said, okay, well, how do you put it all together then? How is it that you make some meaning out of this life that you've been given? How do you answer the big questions in life? You know what he said to me? He said this, have you ever seen the movie Men in Black? He said, in that movie there's a cat and on the cat's collar is a pendant and inside the pendant is another Galaxy, another world. And he said, I believe that's what life is like. Hold, hold the phone for a second. You mean to tell me that you put life together, you put the meaning of life together, you answer those big questions of life by letting Tommy Lee Jones and the fresh Prince of Bel-Air tell you what the meaning of life is. That's how you put it together? And I wish I could say that it was different for a lot of adults that I've run into. I wish I could say that there are many people that I've run into who have better answers to the questions than that. But the truth is I haven't. I've seen people miss it. And I think this is why we need the book of Ecclesiastes. Because it's going to tell us how to put life together. And I want to be honest with you this morning. There are going to be some of you who do not like the book of Ecclesiastes. You're not going to like it. Why would I say such a thing? Because Ecclesiastes does not give any pat answers. Ecclesiastes does not give any easy answers. Ecclesiastes does not give any non-answers. Ecclesiastes is written to make you wrestle with the question. To make you wrestle with your understanding about life. To make you feel the weight and the tension of The question. And Christians, I don't want us to like pat answers. I don't want us to give easy answers. I don't want us to give non-answers. And that's why I'm afraid that so many Christians and so many churches have done. They've settled for trite Christianity. They've settled for the pat answers. They've settled for the easy answers. They've settled for the non-answers. They've tried to sweep those questions under the rug, shh, don't ask those kind of questions. And I believe that's why younger generations have been leaving the church in droves because they've been asking the questions and we haven't been giving them the answer. We've been settling for pat answers or easy answers. And the problem is, they know that those questions are bigger than the pat answers that we're, than we're willing to give them. They're looking for something more And we're failing to give them something more. And so if they can't find the answers with us, they will go elsewhere and look for answers. That's why we have to get the answer right. Because we want those younger generations to know the answers that satisfy. The answers that really bring meaning to life. Ecclesiastes, in the mind of the Jews, was a manual for life. It was a manual particularly for young people. If you look at the wisdom literature in the Bible, so that would be books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. They were viewed as manuals for life. So Proverbs was a manual for parenting. You want to know how to parent your child? Go to the book of Proverbs. That'll tell you how to parent your children. You want to know. What it looks like to be in a good marriage, what marriage is supposed to look like, go to the Song of Solomon. You want to know what life is supposed to look like, young person, go to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's going to deal with those big questions of life that are going to arise in the mind of the youth, but they don't just stay in the mind of the youth, do they? They continue on, they continue to be a part of our questions For many years after that. And we must not think of Ecclesiastes as written by a skeptic or a cynic or a dissenter. Ecclesiastes was written by a teacher whose orthodox, whose right teachings and musings on God stand firm in the broad stream of biblical wisdom. That's what Ecclesiastes is teaching us. It's teaching us biblical wisdom, how to live life skillfully. With those big questions that loom. And Ecclesiastes is gonna frustrate you because it's not very mathematical. Is that the way that you view life? I I like my life to be precise. Two plus two always equals four. Isn't that how you like your life? Do you like the exceptions in life? I like to live in the generalities. I like to live in the, okay, I do this and this and this, and this is going to be the outcome. That's what Proverbs is. Proverbs gives us the generalities of life. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Generally true. But what? But you know from experience, that's not always true. You know there are exceptions in life. And my soul and my heart and my mind bucks at the exceptions in life. You're taught those things in school, aren't you? Like spelling the rule I before E. If you're going to spell a word, I before E. Great. I love that rule. Perfect rule. I before E. Got it. Accept after C. Okay? Okay. I can deal with that exception. I before E always except after C. Or in sounding like A as in neighbor. Forget it. Just forget it. I'm just going to shoot in the dark and let spell checker ha- spell check handle it. You know, I'm not going to too many exceptions in my life. Isn't that the way we treat life though? Too many exceptions. How do you deal with them? What do you do when 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4 in your life? And that's what Ecclesiastes says. 2 plus 2 in life doesn't always equal 4. There are exceptions. How are you going to handle the exceptions when they come your way? What are you going to do with them? Are you going to give up? Can't handle it. Can't do it. Or are you going to live the life that God wants you to live in every circumstance, in every situation, in every way that comes our way from God? And Ecclesiastes comes to us and knocks us down off of our high horse. Ecclesiastes builds some humility into our lives where we say, I don't know everything. I need some help. Man thinks that we're capable of doing something meaningful, something lasting in our life, and we expend much energy trying to move towards this goal to break the curse that's upon our world and to break the curse that's upon our life. We feel that tension, and we think, I can do something about it. I can do something meaningful. I can do something lasting. I can expound some energy and and fix it. Ecclesiastes comes to us and gives us a healthy dose of reality. <laughs> things that we have to face. if We're going to live the life that God wants us to live. Three things I think he wants us to face today. Three, three things from the very beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes that we have to come to terms with if we're going to move forward in this life. Number one, You can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. You must face the motto of life. You must face the motto of life. The very first verse is by way of introduction, a statement of who is writing the book. These are the words of the preacher, as it says in my version. And preacher is that word that we derive the name Ecclesiastes from. Ecclesiastes is the Latin form of this idea of preacher or teacher or master of ceremonies in an assembly. And so the idea is that he's gathered all the people together in the congregation. Now he is going to be teaching them. He's going to be telling them something. Maybe slightly different than the way we would view a preacher today. But this is what he is doing. He's one who's speaking to us. And he calls himself the son of David. This, that is that the author is of the royal line of Israel's king who was a man after God's own heart so David was a man after God's own heart this uh, person this king is a son of David He is in the line of the king to whom God made this promise in second Samuel 7 I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. That's the line that this man is in. He's also the king in Jerusalem. That's where all of the sons of David ruled from. They ruled from Jerusalem. And for honest at this point, we have to say that the letter is somewhat anonymous in that it doesn't give us a particular, specific name. It gives us some titles that this man holds, but we don't have an actual name of who it is that's writing this book to us. When we encounter some of the other things that he says throughout this book, it would appear that the writer's experience most closely reflects that of the King Solomon. Today, this authorship is highly debated by scholars with the non-traditional view saying that this was written someone who is pretending to be Solomon, but it wasn't written by Solomon himself. They would say that there are particular experiences that he would not have had, that it was written in a style that was much later than Solomon, but I lean towards the traditional stance that this was Solomon, and I don't think that the Jews would have let something into the canon, With the intent to deceive, right, as far as the author of the book. So I lean towards this is Solomon and that these are the teachings, the lessons of Solomon, the king of Israel, the king of Jerusalem, God's anointed king. In that sense, in one sense, this is the messianic wisdom coming to the people. But immediately after this brief introduction, we are hit with the theme of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. What an uplifting book. What a great way to start, right? If you're going to write a book, is that the way you start your book? Mm, How can I make my reader feel just great about themselves? All is vanity. That's how. That's what he wants to stick in our heads. That's what he wants to be ringing in our ears as we read this book. In fact, we're going to read those words, vanity, over and over and over again. Some 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he puts his title there in that verse. Do you see that verse too? Vanity of vanities says the preacher. It's like he is saying, are you ready to listen to what I'm about to say? Are you ready to accept what I'm about to say? You're gonna believe what I'm about to say to you? I'm the preacher, listen to me. All is vanities. All is vanity. This idea of vanity has strong ties to the idea of breath, or wind, or vapor. And in the way that it's used, it brings to mind various understandings. First, it brings to mind this idea that life is futile. In fact, one translation, the NIV, uses the word meaningless here. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. In the sense that life is futile. I believe that's the way that we can sometimes feel about life, isn't it? is there meaning in life? is life futile? why is all this happening? why is all of this going on? It just seems so vain. it just seems like it's all vanity. I feel like this absurdity to life, this pointlessness to life. It also has this idea of the fact that life is fleeting. Life doesn't last long. It's here for a moment and then it's gone. In fact, some people have said this is like the preacher saying, soap bubbles, soap bubbles. Everything is a soap bubble. It looks nice and shiny and beautiful as it glistens in the light, but then it pops and is gone. It doesn't last. Psalm 39 5 says this Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Or listen to what James says 4, 13-14. through 14. Come now you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit yet you do not know that to, what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little and then vanishes. That's what life is like. It's Like breath on a cold winter morning. When you go out and you breathe and you see your breath for that split second and then it's gone, that is your life. You feel that. You feel that it's not going to last forever. It's not going to, this life that you know right now, it's not going to be forever. Vanity also tells us that. Life is obscure. Life is dark. Life is hard to figure out, seemingly difficult, almost impossible to figure out. That's why I've titled this series through the book of Ecclesiastes, The Mysterious Life, because that is life. Life is mysterious. I wanted to call it the enigmatic life, which means basically mysterious. But I thought that might be too confusing for people. So I just stuck with the mysterious life. But life is hard to figure out. Life is mysterious, particularly from our vantage point as those who live under the sun. This world isn't necessarily meaningless, but it is difficult for us to untangle the meaning because often, if we're honest, we're in the dark. And this is why the language that he's using is so intriguing. Listen to what he says. All is vanity. Do you hear the language? It's like someone saying there's no such thing as absolute truth. When you make that statement, you say, really? There's no such thing as absolute truth? What about that statement that you just made? Is that absolutely true or not? It's like someone who decries the social media using a Facebook post. I mean, think about it. If he says, all is vanity, why are you even writing this? Why even write down that sentence if all is vanity? And what the preacher is doing, what Solomon is doing, is he is going to point out for us everything in life that is vanity so that we know what isn't vanity. What is true and real and good and meaningful in life but he doesn't just come out and say it. He says there's a a long way we have to go to understand all the things that are vain and vanity in life. And that's what we have to feel the burden of. So where does he start? As we come to terms with this motto that we have in life, all this vanity, okay, okay, That's hard to take in, it's difficult, but let's see where this goes. So number two this morning, if you're going to face the motto of life, that means you also must face the monotony of life. You must face the monotony of life. The the preacher begins with this soul-searching question, doesn't he, in verse three? What does a man gain by all the toil that he toils under the sun? What are you working for? What are you expending all of your energy upon? Why do you toil night and day, week after week, year after year in your life? Doesn't man want to gain something? I mean, don't you want to gain something for all of the work that you do in life? Don't you want to have something to show for Don't you want life to matter? Don't you want to say, my life counts for something? You look at this word here, what does man gain? This idea of profit. What's the profit for all of the work that we've done? And I think Behind this is a warning, a danger for materialism. How many people in our world have this view that it's just material things? That's what I'm trying to profit. That's what I'm trying to gain in life. I work and I work and I work so I can have money, so I can have stuff, so I can have things. Don't think that that danger of materialism is something new. It's been going on since the beginning of mankind. We think that we just have enough stuff. We've gained something. And it leads us to that phrase, what does a man gain by all? All the toil at which he toils under the sun. That's another theme, under the sun, that's going to come up again and again in Ecclesiastes. And what does that mean? Some me- thinks that it means under the sun is a life without the view of God, right? So if God is above the sun, then life under the sun is viewing life without God in the picture, That could be true, but I don't think that's the way that Solomon is using it. I mean, Solomon himself has a view of God as he writes. He's going to talk about God in this book. I think the idea of under the sun is that mankind and the earth is in a fallen state. We are in a fallen world. We are in a cursed world, and that's the world that you have to live in under the sun. And so what are you going to gain when you live in this kind of world? a question that cuts to the heart because now appears that man is toiling and working and giving all that he has to gain something in this fallen world what are you going to gain in this cursed world that you're working in and we think somehow that through all of our work, through all of our toil, that we're going to be able to escape the fallen world in fact how many people are deluded with that reality of escapism just to find a way to escape so I don't have to deal with those big questions, so I don't have to face the meaning of life, so I can go on and try to numb myself to what I'm really feeling in my heart and in my soul. What's the answer to the question? What does man gain By all of the toil that he toils under the sun. Man gains nothing. Zip, zilch, nada. You gain nothing from all of your hard work that you toil under the sun. Man still remains in the same state into which he was born. And maybe it's here that we even hear the echoes of Jesus Christ in Mark 8.36 when Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but what? Forfeit his soul. Jesus is saying, you could have everything. Everything in the world. You could have the whole world. Everything that you could ever imagine. Possessions, wealth, position, status, praise. You could gain everything but still have nothing. you forfeited your souls. You've built, you've torn down barns so you could build up bigger ones and Jesus says, you fool, this night your life is required of you. Doesn't matter how many barns you have. Doesn't matter how much you filled up in your life. If your soul isn't secure in God, you have nothing. You haven't fixed yourself preacher then takes us on a tour of observations that he's made in the world a generation goes and a generation comes notice the intentional backwardness of those phrases do you hear that we might say a generation comes and a generation goes but what does the preacher do he reverses it a generation goes He emphasizes the fact that generations are fleeting. They don't last. Generations aren't going to be here forever. Some generation is going to come after you and it's going to do things differently. It's going to do things the way that you wouldn't do them. It's going to do do things the way that you wouldn't like them to be done. But your generation is fleeting. It's going to be gone. Whatever you think your generation has going for it, whatever you think... Benefits your generation, there's another generation that's going to come after you, and your generation is going to be gone. And it's going to continue on, generation after generation after generation, but the earth remains the same. What's it saying? The fallen condition, that state, that curse is still there. No generation fixes it. doesn't matter if you think your generation is great or has something going for it. It hasn't done anything to eliminate the problem. The sun rises. The sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. The sun goes up, goes down. Doesn't get anywhere. In fact, that word hastens is the idea of the sun panting. It's like the sun is out of breath, it's tired, it's been doing this day after day after day, and it's worn out. It's breathing heavily. What about the wind? Round and round goes the wind. Where it stops, nobody knows. I know that from two years in Illinois. Where does the wind go? Well, I don't know. It's coming back around, though. You can bet on that. Keeps blowing and blowing and blowing and keeps coming around. And where does the wind come from? Keeps going around on its circuits. What about the streams? Streams keep flowing into the sea, yet the sea is not full. The sea is never satisfied. The sea never says it's enough. The same streams continue to flow and flow and flow. And what's the preacher's point? He gets there in verse 8, doesn't he? He lists all these observations, and then he says in verse 8, all things are full of weariness. Life is tiring. Look at the world. Look at all the weariness in the world. Look at all the monotony of the world around you. Look at all the repetitiveness of life around you. And you think that somehow you are going to escape that? You are on the treadmill of existence, always running but never arriving. You are on the hamster wheel of life and you spin and you spin and you spin until you are exhausted. And guess what? You haven't gotten anywhere. And man cannot even tell of all of the weariness. That's what it says, doesn't it? A man cannot utter it. He is so overwhelmed by the weariness that he knows in the world. He's so overwhelmed by the weariness in his life that he can't even speak of it, lest it throws him into the pit of despair. Man cannot utter all of the weariness. And ear is not satisfied with all that it hears. And eye is not satisfied with all that it sees. There's always more to hear. There's always more to see. And isn't that our culture? Where we always want something more to see, something more to hear. And we fill up our lives with looking at more things, with hearing more things. And instead of it really satisfying, which we hope it's going to do, What does it do? It only adds to the monotony, the weariness, the tiredness of life. There's always another podcast to listen to. There's always another Netflix show to watch. It doesn't bring anything to life. Life is monotonous, repetitive, and it terrifies people terrifies people to think that life is monotonous, that they're not getting anywhere. Because when you're in that space where you know life is monotonous, you have this question, what is the point? Why am I doing this? Why am I on this wheel? There's something in your soul that's weighing you down because everything appears purposeless. When you face the monotony of life, when you've experienced it, you know that in your life, all your effort has not gotten you anywhere, and you think, can that change? Will that change? Yes, it can change, and it does change, and it changes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where the change takes place. Not something that you've done to get yourself off of the hamster wheel, but it's something that Jesus Christ has done in dying and rising again from the dead. That is what changes the monotony in life. That's what makes your life purposeful and meaningful. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 15.58 says. Uh, Let's just think about this for a second. Paul has just been flooding us with this great truth of the resurrection. That that there's no more death. There's no more sting in death. But that in Christ There's victory over death in the resurrection. And then he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is what? Not in vain. Jesus Christ, because he's conquered death, makes it so you can live a life Where you labor, and you toil, and you expend energy, and it's not in vain. And in fact, you know what? It's better because it's not even self-centered anymore. It's completely centered on Him, and His glory, and His way, and what delights Him, and what honors Him. And that's what makes your labor not be in vain. Number three, you must face the obscurity of life. You must face the obscurity of life. We look at life, we see that cycle, and we tend to think, if I can just break the cycle, if I can just get out of that for a moment, if I can just do something different, if I can just be someone different, if I can just make a difference, maybe then I will get somewhere. But what does the, te- the, the preacher tell us? You think you're someone different? You think you're someone special. You think that you can do something in this world that's going to actually make a difference. Forget it. There's nothing new under the sun. In this fallen state, there is nothing that, which we should consider new. Is there anything of which it can be said, See, this is new? Look, I found something new, something revolutionary, something that will change our lives forever. The preacher quickly reaches in and pokes us in the eye. No, there's nothing new. It's already been in the ages before. Maybe if you're like me here, you ask a quick question. Well, wait a second. Let's think about this. The microwave is new, isn't it? The electric car is new, isn't it? We've plumbed the depths of the ocean. We've sent people up into space. Aren't those things new? And all of those new technologies that we think are so advanced and so great have done nothing to change the condition of man. You can sit in your electric car and you can still sin. You can be standing on the moon and you can still have a fallen, hard, unrepentant heart as you look at the earth. You can be in the depths of the ocean and still be far from God. There's nothing new. Nothing has been done or we've done nothing to take away our sin. We've done nothing to heal all of our diseases. We've done nothing to eradicate death. Nothing new has been able to lift us out of our miserable condition. This is what eats at us. It eats away at mankind because we tend to think that we are someone special we tend to think that we can do something new, something fresh, something impressive, something that will be meaningful, something that will last, something that will make a difference. And in all of it, what does it show us? It shows us just how self-centered, self-focused, independent, we think that we can be And that's why this hits us like a ton of bricks. There's nothing noteworthy in you for people to remember you. People will continue to forget and forget and forget. You will live and you will die in complete obscurity. How does that make you feel? You will live and you will die and no one will remember. Maybe they'll remember you for a little bit, but... They're eventually going to forget. You've forgotten. You have to face obscurity. And oh, how we long for something to change in our lives. Oh, how we long for something new to break in on the scene and change everything. And fix everything. That longing in your heart, that longing for something new, that longing for meaning, for purpose, is supposed to be there. It's good for it to be there. But let me tell you something this morning. You don't need a new spouse. You don't need a new car. You don't need a new house, new friends, new location, new money, new clothes. Or anything else that you might think of you say, I just need something new in my life and then I'll feel better about myself. No, what you need is a Savior who can really give you something new. Because that's what Jesus does. And that's why the Bible talks about a new heart. People need a new heart, and that's what comes through faith in Jesus Christ, is a new heart and a new birth. People are born again when they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus comes and says, I give you a new commandment, that you're to love one another just as I have loved you. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's the newness that Jesus Christ brings into life because when you trust in Jesus Christ, what does it say? You are now a new creation. Behold, the old has gone away, the new has come. That's the newness that you need in your life. That's the newness that Ecclesiastes is longing for. This newness that comes in Jesus Christ and that's the only place where you're ever going to find it. You need a God who says, behold, I am making all things new. And that's the newness that I pray that you have. That you know Jesus Christ and are a new creation in him. Because that's the only newness that's ever going to get you anywhere in life. It's only going to save you. It's only going to care for you and give you the life that you're longing for. We are struck by the motto of life. We're struck by the monotony of life. We're struck by the obscurity of life. That tension can only be resolved in a Savior who gives us something new. Is that what you look to when you're beaten up by the weariness of life? Is that what you look to when you think, if I could just make a name for myself, if I could just be remembered, if I just won't be forgotten? You would say, I don't need to do that because I have a new name in Jesus Christ. I have a a new name in him because I am united to him. I don't need to make a name for myself. I don't need to find a new life because I have new life in Christ. I don't need to worry about being on a hamster wheel because I have Jesus Christ. Christ who deals with all of my weariness and all of my tiredness and all of the monotony and all of the repetitiveness and he gives me something of meaning and something that fills my deepest longings and my deepest desires and that truly satisfies. And when you find that, you find the glory of messianic wisdom. You find the glory of the King himself, Jesus Christ pray. Father, we pray that we would have ears that hear what you are saying to us, your people. That we might be willing to face the music and wrestle with the tough questions in life. And Lord, as we come to you humble and needy, we look to you as the only one who has the answers. So help us. Help us when we feel like all is vanity. Help us when we feel like life is mysterious and we don't know why this has happened. Help us when we feel weary and obscure. Help us to know that there is one who's done everything that we need to reverse the curse that's in our world. And that one day we look forward to this day when everything will be new. In Jesus' name. Amen.